Good afternoon. Good to see you all. Uh, I was gone last week. Oh, my name is Jesse, by the way. I see some new people. In case you don't know who I am, even if you came last week, I wasn't here. Uh, and I feel like I missed a lot. Um, I missed camping, which uh, I thought I missed a lot, but some people were talking about how they slept on the floor and their backs are never going to be the same. So I don't know how much I miss it um, or how much I missed. I missed the beginning of our new series through Jude, and that was kind of by design. Eric did a great job. Um, hey, Jude. So if you could open your Bibles to the book of Jude, second to last book in the New Testament, in the entire Bible, actually. It might not even stay open when you get there. The book of Jude. Last weekend, I was out of town preaching at a retreat for, I guess you could say, young people. It was a bunch of college students and young singles who had entered the workforce. They had moved out of their parents' house for the first time. And there were a lot. I think there were about 130 people there. Um, and I remember before I went, um, Christine said, you got to preach shorter, right? This is Gen Z, the TikTok generation, right? Like, you can't preach for an hour. So I really tried to make the sermon shorter. And I think my longest one ironically, was about the brevity of life. So hopefully they took something away from that. I said, you have one short life, but I'm going to talk to you for 15 minutes about it. Um, now I'm back here, and uh, I know you have longer attention spans, so we'll see how this goes. We're in the book of Jude. We're calling this new series Once for All. And I'll try to explain why we're calling it that. Uh, there are a few series on Jude out there. Um, Jude has famously been called the most neglected book in the entire New Testament. I think that could be accurate. Uh, not a lot of people teach from this book. That's one of the reasons why we're doing it, uh, on top of feeling like it has an important message for us. Um, but really trying to, uh, and just trying to capture what this book is about. Um, we wanted to call it once for all. We wanted that, that term, that phrase to stick in your minds. And that phrase comes from one of the verses that we're looking at today. So... Hopefully that gets more clear as we get into it. We're going to be in verses 3 and 4, but let me start with verse 1. I'm going to read a verse 4, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? God, we come before your holy word. We know that your word is truth, that your word alone can give life, that you use your word to transform our hearts. And God, as we get into this different series, as we look at a very different book than 2 Samuel. God, I pray that you would just ready our minds to receive the truth that you have for us in this passage. God, I pray that you would help us to understand 
And more than understand, God, I pray that you would help us to live in light of what your word says. God, I pray that we would know what it means to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to us, to those who have been brought from death to life by the gospel of Jesus. We know, God, that we are, that we are weak, God, that, um, we can be blinded to what you have for us. I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. We pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever had to fight for something you love? Have you ever had to fight for something that you love, that you care about? Maybe fight to stop a bully on the playground from hurting one of your friends, or maybe fight to keep your marriage together, or maybe fight something that was threatening to ruin your own life, an addiction maybe, or some kind of struggle. The year was 1940. Winston Churchill had just taken over as prime minister of the United Kingdom, and it had been about eight months at this time since World War II had broken out in Europe. And the nation was looking to Churchill. And this is what he said in one of his most famous speeches. And I quote, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it. It is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Without victory, there is no survival. These words are from the prime minister's famous, we shall fight on the beaches speech. And these words galvanized his nation in its darkest hour with the specter of the Third Reich looming over them, rallying Great Britain to resist the onslaught of Nazi Germany's expansion throughout Europe. Now, you got to understand the context a little bit. Historically, the previous prime minister of the UK, Neville Chamberlain, had sought peace which is a noble aim, but he had sought peace at any cost. He wanted to avoid war, to avoid any sort of conflict with Hitler. But now it was clear that Hitler wasn't going to stop, that you couldn't just say, I don't want any part of that. Hitler was bringing the battle to their very doorstep. To survive, they had to fight. And that's why Winston Churchill said these words, without victory, there is no survival. I'm not asking you, do you like to fight? I'm not asking you, do you want to fight? The question is, have you ever had to fight? Now, the truth is, some of us, we like to fight. That was kind of my concern, even in preaching Jude, because Jude is a book about contending for the faith. Jude is a very pointed book. And the thing is, some of us like to fight. We like to see the things that are wrong. We like to call them out. We're not afraid of conflict. In fact, we enjoy it to a certain extent. And there is something to that. I'm not saying you're wrong in having that personality, but I don't want to pour gasoline on that fire, depending on where that fire is directed. 
Others of us, we're conflict avoidant. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't ever want to make anyone mad at us or dislike us. We don't want to create tension in our relationships. But again, the question is, and the issue is, sometimes we have to fight. That's what Judah's saying. Now, why are we even talking about this? I know some of us have this question. You might even wonder what place fighting, quote-unquote, has in church. Isn't Christianity a religion that promotes peace? Did not Jesus himself say, turn the other cheek and love your enemies? Yes, he did. Yes, and yes again. Clearly, the Bible does not call us to be war hawks, seeking out ever-ongoing conflicts, to be pugnacious people who love to instigate. However, however, there are times when the battle is brought to our doorstep. There are times, as Jude says, where we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contend or risk losing it entirely. And the truth is that time has been here. This is an important book for us. I think we can see the fallout of the tragic neglect of the book of Jude in the preaching of the church. The time has been here. So, okay, we're in Jude. Just one chapter. The series is going to take us, I think, 10 weeks. That's our plan. So that's kind of how we roll here. One chapter, 10 weeks. We're calling this series once for all, like I said, because of the passage we just read before we prayed. And in this passage, Jude lays out why he's writing this letter in the first place. Because even though there are other things he might rather talk about, In an ideal world, in the real world in which we live, there are times in which we must wake up and fight. There are times where we have to contend for what we believe in. But what does that mean? Why is it so urgent? What does it even look like? Can we do it wrong? Let's get into it. We're going to look at these two verses in three parts under three headings. It's going to be similar in that sense to 2 Samuel we're going to look under, uh, look at this text under three different titles, I guess you could say. First, the cause. The cause, which is about the fight, but also maybe more importantly, what we're supposed to fight for. Look at verse three. Jude writes, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, notice, first of all, that first word. Now, every word in the Bible is important, okay? Every single word is inspired, every jot, every tittle, it's important. However, in a book like Jude, where it's only one chapter long, Every word is not only important in the general sense, but also specifically. Every word is relatively super important to the meaning of the book that he's trying to convey. So look at that first word, beloved. It's not a throwaway. Jude starts with commonality, okay, with the common ground that he has with his readers. He calls them beloved. In Greek, the word is agapitoi. And this word is used many times in the New Testament, and it was common in the church because love was central, to the church, right? It's central in the Bible. And love is a huge part of this letter. In fact, we've already seen the same word earlier on uh, last week in verse one, to those who are called beloved in God, the father. The identity of the Christian is wrapped up in being the beloved of God. The identity of the Christian is wrapped up in the love of God. Not that we love God first and foremost, 
but that he loved us, that he gave his son for us. So Jude has already established that these people he is writing to are the beloved of God, and now he's calling them his beloved. Do you see how this kind of works? For those who are loved by God, there's a connection between them. You could translate this term in this context in verse 3, dear friends. And he might not even know these people, some of them at least. So why is he saying this? They're his beloved because they are God's beloved. God loves them. He loves them as well. It's a theological reality. Now to make it maybe a little bit more concrete, it's a bit like when you're introduced to a mutual friend. Okay, to someone through a mutual friend that you love and respect and trust. I'm not just talking about romance either, like being set up or something. I'm just talking about friendship. In fact, I was thinking about my own life. The first uh, person, I think, who really talked me through Reformed theology. Okay, and actually the first person I ever went to Grace Community Church with, uh, that's where I went to seminary later on, uh, I met through a mutual friend of ours. They had gone on this missions trip together. And uh, he, my friend, uh, he was visiting from out of town. I used to live in California. He lived in Seattle, but he was in LA and he said, I want to hang out. Um, but is it okay if my other friend comes too, who also lives in LA, kill two birds with one stone? And I think you guys might get along. So I remember we hung out a little bit and we got it. We started talking about like Christianity and they went on a mission trip. We we're talking about church and the Bible. And that's kind of snowballed into these other things that had a huge influence on my life. It was because of that mutual friend, though, looking back, uh, that we were able to connect in the first place with this other person who influenced me. We had this level of comfort right off the bat where we were able to talk about more serious spiritual things, even from the first meeting. A friend of yours is a friend of mine. You got to get how that works. And that's what we see here to a certain extent. Jude writes to people that he might not have a relationship with or might not be close with as dear friends, as beloved people. Why? Because... They have the same relationship with God. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, notice he wanted to write about their common salvation. That was his intention as he sat down with pen in hand. Their common salvation. The word translated common here in Greek is the word koinos. And it means shared, okay, or or mutual or ordinary. You might even say it's basic. And I don't mean that in kind of a derogatory sense, like this person is basic in, in kind of the slang today. I mean, just in terms of kind of the, the common thing at the baseline that we have together. See, there's a theological reality to the relationship that we have as Christians. We might have different backgrounds. We might be different ages. We might be from different places in the world. We might even speak different languages within the church. We might have different personalities. But if we're Christian, if we're the beloved of God, we are the same when it comes to salvation. There is an eternal reality that binds us together. This is where Jude starts. We are sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's Ephesians 2.8. So Jude starts off with this common ground, this common connection. But then look at verse 3 again. There's a very important word there. He says, although. He would like to talk about all the things we have in common, but he found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. He just wanted to enjoy fellowship, talk about all the, the things they have in common. He wanted to go deeper into the glorious truths that we share as believers. However, 
However, necessity determined that he had to go in a different direction. He had to make an appeal to them to fight for these very things. And this is the word. The word he uses is contend. That's the action of the book of Jude. That's the call. A call to contend, which in Greek is the word, apana, uh, uh, you know what? I can't even say it, dude. I've been in Hebrew so long. I kind of forgot how to pronounce Greek, but it's a word and it's a somewhat unique word, but it's related to the word used, used for the exertions of an athlete. And that's where we hear the term contend in our culture today. Okay. We hear this word in certain contexts and one of them is athletics. So for example, in sports, right? Teams compete for the championship. In professional sports, uh, there's usually some kind of playoff system where the best teams compete or they contend for the grand prize of being world champion. And you'll hear the term, there are contenders, and then there are those who have dropped out of contention. When you have a bad record, you can't compete anymore, you're not a contender. They aren't in the fight anymore. See, this is kind of the idea. One commentator defined contending as effort expended in a noble cause. See, what Judah's saying is, I want you to fight to win. You got to compete. You got to contend. Effort expended in a noble cause. Now, this word contend might be the most important single word in this book. It sets the whole trajectory of where Judah's going to go. And it sets Judah apart from most other books in the Bible. He's saying, look, we're not jogging here. We're actually in a race. It's not a fun run. He says, you're actually in the boxing ring. You're in the octagon. You've been drafted and you're on the front lines. There needs to be a sense of urgency that matches the stakes. And this is the perspective shift before anything else. Do we realize there are actual dangers for Christians? I'm talking about spiritual dangers. Do you realize that there are teachings and teachers that have done and are doing great damage to the church, even right now? Do you understand that we can't walk the Christian walk oblivious? You know, like sometimes you're walking down the street and it's late at night. You look at what's going on around you. You don't just have your headphones in, just listening to music. You know that there are certain dangers. I mean, let me ask you, what are your thoughts? What thoughts have you had about kind of the false teaching that pervades the church today? Jude's concern is that his readers aren't recognizing the predicament, that they are lounging while they should be on guard, that they aren't even even concerned when they should be contending. So what does that look like? What are we supposed to do? What does contending look like for us? I think maybe the first thing that comes to mind for at least some of us, and I know for me, is kind of the proliferation of keyboard warriors that are out there these days. And that seems to be the main ways that a lot of Christians want to contend nowadays, battling anything that smells off through memes and long Facebook posts and comments and the crying laughing face emoji for some reason. And this is largely because this is how discourse is done today overall. You see it in the political realm. You go on Twitter. You see how people are arguing 24-7. You see people building up these huge followings on Instagram and TikTok. Podcasts are readily available to spread whatever kind of information you want to the world and to take it in. 
I mean, the battleground is digital, but it also happens in the church, right? It happens in small group. It happens when you're just talking to someone at work who happens to be a Christian, but they listen to totally different things than you. They believe different things than you. Some of us, we've gotten our feet wet in contention already. We've left a comment here or there. We posted some incendiary stuff on purpose or not. We know the rush kind of of getting heated when you know like this conversation is starting to get real, real fast. And some of us are like, yeah, let's go, right? I need this. In fact, let me just apply this sermon right now. Right? Stop there. I'm going to take out my phone and I'm going to see what kind of heresy I can find. Others of us, though, that's the last thing we'd ever want to do. And you're wondering, okay, what is the application here? Are you saying that we need to go out and just find every false teacher that's out there? I mean, we have the internet. We're connected to literally every single person who says anything. We're just made at the level of division among Christians. We feel like there should be less fighting. We don't want to get into social media battles. And we're like, pastor, is this what the Bible is saying? That we just need to be constantly fighting, constantly looking for fights. Well, what does the word contend mean? It means effort expended in a noble cause. And this is why I called the point the cause and not the contention, because you got to understand that built into the idea of contending, into this Greek idea, is not so much the fight itself, but what you're fighting for. That's what's important. It's the cause. What does Jude say? Not first of all to contend against anything that seems off. We'll get to that. But first of all to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, the saints, Christians, were given the stewardship of the faith. The truth that is at the heart of Christianity that hasn't changed, that will never change, that won't pass away even in eternity. We have been given this once-for-all body of doctrine, and we must preserve it and defend it and hold on to it and not let it slip away. You know, it's kind of like this thing that I've heard. I've heard that when uh, banks train people who are into or are supposed to be able to identify counterfeit money, okay, they don't start off by giving you every single counterfeit bill that you can possibly encounter. They don't start off by giving you the most common counterfeit or like phony dollar bills out there. They don't talk about different marks that are off. Instead, what they do is they give you real dollar bills and 20s and 5s, whatever. And they tell you to master what it looks like, what it feels like, the feel of the paper, kind of how heavy it is all the little intricate markings and symbols, what it feels like when you crinkle it up, when you fold it, all these different things, the the color of the ink. They want you to become masters of real money, genuine money. And then you could start to learn how to find what fakes are. See, if you don't know what's real, you're not going to know what's fake. So, This is where Jude is kind of going. If we are to contend against whatever it is that might lead us away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we need to know what the faith once for all delivered to the saints is. We kind of got to know what it feels like, all the intricate details, the look of it applied and realized. We need to become masters of what's true, or rather you could say mastered by it. 
Now notice Jude says the faith, the faith. This is a catch-all term to describe the doctrine at the heart of Christianity, what we must believe in order to be Christian. This term is used throughout the New Testament. And when we look at how it's used elsewhere, we get an idea of what specifically Jude might mean. For example, Galatians 1.23, this is what Paul says. And he's talking about his conversion from being a hater of Christianity to maybe its greatest missionary of all time. He says, They only were hearing it said about me, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he used to, or he once tried to destroy. He was preaching the faith. Philippians 127, also Paul, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Or Colossians 1.23, again, Paul, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He preached the faith. And if you're listening to these last two verses, he's talking about the gospel, the message by which you can be saved. The faith is connected with the gospel. The gospel, the word literally means good news. And it's the simple news that Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose again. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. Listen to these words. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. There is a common salvation, a basic message at the center of Christianity that makes Christianity Christianity. And it doesn't change. It was once for all delivered to the saints by Jesus and by the apostles whom he sent. It won't change. So beware new things. Beware what's new and shiny. Oh, I have a new revelation from God. What we're supposed to contend for is the faith that has been the same for 2,000 about years. Heresies will come and go. Faddish teachings will appear and then disappear. But the truth at the heart of Christianity is timeless and forever, once for all. And this is what we need to master, or rather be mastered by. It's who Christ is. It's what Christ did. And it's how we should have a relationship with him. We must fight. You got to understand, this is where we're starting Right. Jude doesn't even start his letter like Paul normally does with some kind of prayer of thanksgiving or encouragement. He just says, look, there's something we got to talk about. You got to wake up and contend. We have to contend, but we're not called to love the fight. We're not called to be heresy hunters. We're called to contend for the truth that saves. You know, there's a line from a movie that came to mind. You might know where it's from. It's a pretty divisive movie, I got to say, so I'm not even going to say what it is. But the line is, we're going to win this war, not by fighting what we hate, but saving what we love. And there's wisdom in that approach. So here's the first point. Learn to love the gospel. 
Go deep into it. Love the cause. And this means studying doctrine. This means getting to know Jesus Christ personally. This means learning the myriad ways the gospel applies to our everyday lives, even before we go to eternal life. This means holding fast to the center of what we believe. Don't love the fight. Love Christ and his gospel and then fight for what you love. You see that? This leads to the second point. You might have questions still. Second point is the creeps. I thought it was kind of funny, but I like the C's. Um, it's about learning to recognize the danger. And the reason why I called it this is right here in verse 4. For certain people have what? They have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice the danger isn't just some certain specific ideas or certain influences at certain people. Okay, the, the reason we must contend is that there are people who are against Christ and therefore against us. But the people Jude is worried about, they don't announce themselves as false teachers. They aren't open enemies. They don't declare war. They don't say, well, well, well. Have you ever tried to believe in a different God? They don't say that. They don't put false teacher on their name tag. They creep in. They sneak in. The word here in Greek carries this idea of stealth. They work in such a way that you would not be easily aware of it. They aren't obvious. You know, I was watching this TV show. I've watched it before in the past. It's called The Mole. Have you heard of it? It's been going on for like years and years and years. Um, It's a TV show where it's like a reality show and a bunch of people go on and they work as a team to try to accomplish these missions. And if they accomplish them well, they earn more money for the pot at the end. And every week you eliminate one person and at the very end, one person wins the whole thing. Okay, so you have kind of a vested interest in doing the best you can to win as much money for hopefully your future self. Does that make sense? But it's called the mole because there's one person in the group who's actually an actor who is trying to actively sabotage the missions to lower the pot. And no one knows who it is, right? They're a spy. That's why it's called the mole. It's a term for a spy. Now, the thing about the mole is, though, they don't wear a name tag that says the mole. They don't introduce themselves and say, what do I do for work? I'm an actor, and I'm here to ruin the day for you guys. They act like a normal person. They act like they're trying to win money for the pot. They try to deceive everyone into thinking they're just one of them. It's not easy to identify who the mole is. The truth is the people we should be most worried about oftentimes are not the most obvious. You know, I've met quite a few people since I've become a pastor who I would say have a quick trigger finger. They're very quick to say that someone is a heretic, someone is a false teacher, to tell me about someone said something wrong in church or how someone was listening to a podcast that might not be 100% solid. They don't hesitate to call people out, basically. Some even fancy themselves as having the gift of discernment. And I don't know if they did. I don't even quite know what they meant by that. But what I do know is that real false teachers, according to Scripture are usually not the easiest to identify. Because look at the text. These people, they crept in what? 
unnoticed. Unnoticed. And what do they do? They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. This is just one example. He's going to go into more examples of how false teachers operate as we go along. And he keeps it purposefully kind of general so that we could apply it to any situation. But here he talks about how they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And this is so insightful. It's not that they deny grace. They don't say, have you ever tried good works? It's not that they question grace. What they were doing was they were preaching the truth of the grace of God freely given to sinners, but then they applied it in such a way as to pervert it into a license to sin. And this happens all the time. I mean, Christianity is a religion of grace. I remember there was this one preacher who was a rising star kind of in the reformed world. And I remember he had this small church and it was blowing up. And then this big mega church in the PCA hired him to be the new pastor, to take over for this legendary pastor that passed away. He was writing books. He was preaching at all these conferences and people love what he was, he was saying. He wrote this book called Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And it was kind of against legalism and A lot of people ate it up because legalism is a problem in the church. But then it came to light that he had an affair. He had talked, he had been talking so much about how we're just sinners, right? We can't, we just do bad things all the time, but there's grace. That was his message. And then he had an affair. And when people said, Hey, uh, you had an affair, (laughs) you should probably step down from being a pastor. He finally did from his church, but he just started another church. And what he said was, We're just sinners, and that's why we have grace, right? I never said I was a good person. I never said I was going to be faithful, right? I'm just a sinner, right? Sue me. I don't think anyone did. He used grace as justification for the wrong things that he did. He held on to depravity as if it was a shield, the doctrine of depravity, as if it was a shield for whatever he wanted to do. He said, look, what I did, it just magnifies the grace of God all the more. And we need churches that are going to stop talking about sin and start talking about grace. And even what he was saying, it sounded somewhat biblical. But what did Paul say about this very thing? The Apostle Paul, he said, Romans 6, what shall we say then? After talking about the grace of God, how it covers all our sins, Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? See, Paul understood that grace could be, could be taken as a license to sin. So what he said was, look, if you really understand grace and how costly it is, how amazing it is, how difficult it is for God to give it, then you wouldn't want to keep on sinning, right? You would understand that that was your old life, that this is something that God doesn't like. You'd understand that grace means freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Grace is what saves us out of our old selves. But a lot of people are still following that one pastor. Because, I mean, if you think about it, it sounds like a good message. I mean, who here hasn't wanted to just sin in your life at one point or another? You know what? I just want to say that main thing. You know what? I just want to give in to lust this one time. You know what? Who cares if I'm living for money? It just, I just need it. You know, there are certain things that we want to do. And when you hear someone saying, well, I got an answer for you. It's grace. Just do it and then ask for forgiveness. And God has to forgive you. It's what we want to hear sometimes. And that's the danger. In fact, go to second Timothy, just a few books back. 
2 Timothy 4. This was our scripture reading. This is Paul's final letter, the final chapter of Paul's final letter. And this is what he says in verse 1. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I'll let you guys turn there. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, here's the thing. Here's the truth, okay? The sweet spot. You might be wondering, okay, how do I, how do I know what's false? How do I know what's important? What do I go after? What do I defend myself from? It actually starts with you. It starts with you. And you know, you'll know if things are right or wrong, not based on what you like or not, or what sounds good to you or not, but if the Bible says it or not. Maybe you're like, obvious, Captain. Thank you, Pastor Obvious. What's in the word, whether you want to hear it or not, that's what's important. In fact, maybe it's even especially when you don't want to hear it, but it's in the Bible. Paul talks about itching ears. There's a natural inclination that we have to want people who will scratch our itch, who will give us what we want, who give us the message that suits our passions. Right? Someone who says, you know what? If someone sins against you very egregiously, you don't have to forgive. Or someone who says, you don't have to be kind as long as they're wrong. Or someone who says, you don't have to be disciplined in the pursuit of godliness. That's just legalistic weirdoness. It's different for every one of us, but it's the person who takes the truth and twists it to make it more palatable for us. Paul says the time is coming when people will accumulate for themselves teachers. And listen, if that's not true today, and I don't know when it was true. I mean, think about how things are. You can listen to literally any preacher that has online sermons. You don't have to buy a cassette. Right? You don't have to write a letter or anything like that. You just go online and you can download a million sermons. You can download any sermon you want that talks about any topic that you want. It doesn't have to be consecutive passages throughout the Bible. You don't have to listen to the ones that don't interest you. You don't even have to know this person or how they live in any way. Now, okay, don't get me wrong. Right? It's a blessing, right? It's, it's a good thing that we have these resources in a lot of ways. Please take advantage uh, of the best preachers in the world. You can have them in your pocket, but you have to realize that there is a danger to this. There's a danger to this. The reason we do consecutive expository preaching here is because of this danger, Right? I could just pick and choose what I want to talk about, even from the Bible. But I might not talk about certain neglected books, right? But if we just go through 
the test and let God set the agenda. At least we're trying to guard against that a little bit. But nowadays we live in a time where we do just get to pick and choose. We're the connoisseurs of the information we receive. You know, a while back I heard a sermon that was surprisingly not that good. And I say this because not to be a hater, I was surprised because I generally have liked what I've heard from this pastor before. Um, but what he was preaching, and it wasn't even the communication per se. He's a gifted communicator. I can't hold a candle to this guy. Uh, but it was how biblical it was. It wasn't that biblical at all. And then at the very end, after kind of teaching this kind of random stuff, he, he started talking, he kind of went on this rant about kind of the value, the sanctity of life and having to fight for the unborn, which a lot of us could get on board with. And it kind of ended the sermon on a high note, a very passionate note where I think a lot of people were like, yeah, that's what we got to talk about. We got to fight for them. And I said, yes and amen. I, I even felt inspired myself. But then I realized the danger of what I had just experienced because this person was just saying whatever thoughts he had, not tied to the Bible at all, And then at the very end, he got everyone's attention and focus by talking about something that most people in his congregation agreed on and were passionate about. He dropped our defenses. He got us to imbibe the entire message. The litmus test has to be the Bible, teaching the Bible, knowing the Bible, but even more than that, living in light of it. That'll show you who is legit or not. The people who submit themselves in doctrine and deed to the word of God. See, it's not just about heresy hunting or anything like that, or just trying to think, okay, does this feel off or does it feel wrong to me? It's about just knowing the word and really trying to urge yourself and others to just be biblical. Where in the Bible does it say that? Can we just go back to the text? Well, I have a question about that. I, 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 didn't, I didn't see the connection between what you were saying and what the scripture says. You don't have to be looking for a bar fight, okay, every time you go to church. I'm just saying, you got to fight to make sure that the Bible is always on the table and that it's open. Now back to Jude. Back to Jude. For certain people... Jude writes in verse 4, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. Do you notice that? He calls them ungodly. It's not just that they were wrong. When it comes to identifying them, it's not always even about the, the official doctrine that they hold to. It's about an utter godlessness. Because a lot of false teachers, they will have an orthodox doctrine statement on their website. They might even teach you some good things most of the time. I think of someone like Ravi Zacharias, a terrible tragedy for so many of us because we read his stuff. We liked his apologetics. He taught many good things. I don't think I disagree with anything I've ever read him say, honestly. But everything he taught, uh, despite everything he taught, he was living a lie of abuse and sexual immorality, and he ruined a lot of people's lives. So what does it look like to contend? You have to discern And how do you discern, not by looking at yourself or what feels right, or even by looking at their doctrine statement officially, but by always going back to the scriptures? Doctrine and deed according to the scriptures. If you look at the end of Jude, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And we'll get here in a few weeks, but I just wanted to point out that Jude isn't saying just go after every Christian that might be wrong. He says some people might doubt. Some people might be struggling. Show mercy to these people. This is about helping people get back to where they need to be. But then he says, you must hate even the garment stained by the flesh. You just have to watch out yourself that you don't fall into sin. You should hate sin. So don't have a quick trigger finger, but understand how serious false teaching can be. At the end of the day, you just have to have the right priorities. You got to build yourself up in the faith. You got to learn the word. You got to submit yourself to it. You got to be worried about sin, but you got to love sinners. And this leads to the third and final point quickly now, the condemnation, the condemnation, which is about the reason why this is so important. Okay, Jude, this is a letter, okay? It's not a narrative like 2 Samuel. There is a flow to what he's saying, a logical order of reasoning. There's a rhetorical structure. Okay, so he introduces himself. He gives a greeting. Then he tells them why he's writing. He wants them to contend. He's appealing for them to contend. And then he gives a reason in verse 4. Going back to Churchill, Winston Churchill understood what Neville Chamberlain did not. The choices weren't war or peace. The ship had already sailed for peace. The choices weren't war or peace. It was fight to win or lose everything. You either fight to win or lose everything. See, Jude isn't just saying contend because it'll be cool. Or I think that this is a good use of time, a good hobby for you. It says contend for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So you put the pieces together. You follow the false teachers. Where are they going? Condemnation. You follow them, you end up in the same place. Now, I know in some ways, some of you might be thinking, I don't really quite get why we're doing this series. Like, I don't see how this is going to affect my Christian living. I'm pretty busy. I barely have time for devotionals, much less study. Uh, I'll let others do the fighting for me. I mean, we're sheep and you're the shepherd, right? You're supposed to fight. That's true, right? It is why churches have pastors. We're supposed to do that, and we'll try. But part of the reason why we're preaching Jude, and even why this book is in here in the first place, is because as Christians, we need to know what we're up against. And not only that, we need to know where it'll lead if we're not careful. You got to tell people where it's going to lead. In fact, I mean, I think about like, my own kids, right? I don't just follow them everywhere and try to stop them right before they do something that's going to hurt them, right? I actually tell them also what will happen. I don't just wait for them like one second before they touch the fire. Like, oh, well, it's hit their hand away. And when, when they ask, why did you do that? I say, I'm a parent, can't tell you, right? I tell them fire is hot. You could burn yourself. I don't tell them like, I mean, I'll tell them don't go with strangers. I don't try to like snatch them away from every unmarked van, I try to inform them. And this is what Jude is trying to do for us. Look at verse 4 again. He says, these people, they crept in. They're designated for condemnation. They're ungodly. They pervert the grace of God. And they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
two words are important for us before we close, designated and deny. These false teachers, they were designated long ago for this condemnation. Now look at, uh, actually turn with me to John 3. John 3, I want to show you something real quick. John chapter 3, fourth book of the New Testament. False teaching leads to condemnation because Christianity is a religion of truth. Now, the obvious application is don't be a false teacher. But you have to understand that when you follow someone, like I said, you're going to end up where they're going. Now, look at John 3.16. This is in Jesus' famous discussion with the teacher in Israel, Nicodemus. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then verse 18, whoever believes in him is not what? Is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that there are two choices here. Condemnation or salvation. Condemnation or salvation. And corresponding to that, there are two choices. Believe in the Son of God or don't. If you believe in the Son of God, then you will be saved. If you do not believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then you will be condemned. Now, back to Jude. Back to Jude. Keep this in mind. What do these false teachers do? What do they do? At the very end, it says, not only do they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, but ultimately what they're doing is they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny Jesus Christ. Every false teaching, every heresy, in some ways, goes back to Jesus. His identity, his nature, his teaching, what it means to receive what he did. Any kind of like strange cult, but any kind of heresy within the church, it always, at the end of the day, goes back to Jesus. And the reason this is important, the reason we need to contend is because without Jesus, there is no salvation. See, these are the stakes. If we get Jesus wrong, then we have nothing. People won't be saved. We won't be saved. Jude writes not just of a denial of Jesus, notice, like he never existed or isn't alive or isn't God, but specifically, he writes that Jesus is Lord and Master. To be Christian is to recognize the true status of who Jesus is and to submit to that, to receive that, to believe. You know, so many of us, we want a Savior. So many people want a Savior who will guarantee heaven instead of hell at death. But what about a Lord and Master who will change the direction of your life now. See, to have a relationship with Jesus means coming to terms with who he really is, that he is God, that he is Lord and master and bowing the knee. So I would ask first and foremost, before we talk about contending out there about what's going on in here, have you ever done this? Jesus is God. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day. He is alive right now, reigning in heaven. He calls us to believe in him. Do you actually believe in him? The real him. 
the one who is alive right now in heaven, reigning at the right hand of God. See, understand the battle at the end of the day, it begins and ends in our hearts. Whether or not we affirm or deny Jesus Christ, his lordship, his identity, his salvation, because without him, there is only condemnation. See, it's not harmless to believe whatever. Okay, there's a point to discernment. There's a reason why we need to study. There's a reason why we need to be on guard. We need to be on, we need to contend. Why? For our mission field, the gospel that we preach to others, our neighbors, our friends, our family, our children, and then even our very selves. We got to contend for the truth. We'll close here. In 1940, France was under siege. And at the time, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but France fell soon thereafter. The citizens of the United Kingdom were unsure of what the future held. But Winston Churchill took the stand and he gave his famous speech. And he said that without victory, there would be no, no survival. And understand, that's really it. Without victory, we won't have anything left. So I'm not saying that it all depends on you, right? The church will never die. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But Zoe Church could die. This local expression of the church could be ultimately set up against Jesus Christ and his truth. So like every church that has ever existed, we must heed the call of the word of God to contend. If we lose our grip on the faith once for all delivered, if we allow whatever teaching to come and go, if we don't make a priority of godliness, if we don't seek to know the content of the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ, we won't have anything left. We won't have a message to preach. We won't have eternal life to give. We'll be discipling people toward condemnation and not salvation. We won't have assurance. We won't have a relationship with God. We'll have no life-changing message to minister with. Churchill closed the speech with these words. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Christian, as long as there is false teaching in the world and in the church, we'll have to contend. As long as there are false teachers, we'll be in wartime, not peacetime. It's not necessarily a comfortable life, but it's necessary. We need to fight. We need to fight for what to believe, what's right in a world with so many options. We need to fight to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and maybe most importantly of all for you, you need to fight for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the true master and Lord in your hearts. That's where it starts. It starts right here. So again, we're going to get into this book. You don't need to go looking for every single battle out there to fight. The battle is already right here on the doorstep of your heart. What will you believe? How will you live? What will be your priorities? Let's pray together. 
God, I pray that you would give us a love for the truth. God, I pray that you would give us knowledge about who you are and what you've done. At the same time, God, I pray that you would guard us against getting puffed up by this knowledge. God, I pray that you would help us to be humble soldiers for you. And I pray, God, that you would guard our church against what is false, against what is fleshly. And I pray for those who maybe in their flesh are fearful. God, I pray that you would help them, God, to be bold for what is true, bold for Christ. I pray for those who in their flesh might seek to be divisive or pugnacious fighters for fighting's sake. I pray, God, that you would give them a love for people, a mercy for those who doubt, that they would hate even the garments stained by the flesh, including their own, that they would not let pride creep up. God, I pray for all of us, God, that you would spur us on to want to know you, that we might live for you, and that we might look forward to the day when we can be with you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.